0: So Ephesians chapter 4, if you're new to Refuge Church, uh, expository preaching is a big value for us. Uh, preaching verse by verse through the text and through the scriptures is a high, high uh, value for us, and so we have made it to this point in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Uh, today, I'm going to give a little bit of running start into today's text because I think it's important. Uh, it's important today in our context from what we're preaching, and so I'll actually do that with you. Those words will be on the screen, but I encourage you again to have your device or your Bible out with us to uh, follow with us today. So Ephesians chapter four, we'll pick up in verse. Four. Uh, where Paul said from last week, uh, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called into the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Here we start today's text. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Now, I uh, have said already that today is Tough Text Sunday. Because it is, this is a text that probably you don't have written on your wall somewhere. Uh, you don't have it on a little thing on your desk in your office. And so it's not one that gets preached from a lot of times. And honestly, there's just a lot of different interpretations to what this text actually means. What does it actually mean? How do we apply what today's text would mean to us? Uh, what was Paul writing to the church then and how do we apply it? Uh, today and there are multiple opinions about what this text actually means. Uh, some I think are obviously correct. Some I think they miss the point, and uh, and so we'll kind of dive off into some of that today. You'll, you'll, it'll make more sense to you as I explained to you where I was going for a while with this text, and then was like, I don't think that's what this text means after all, and so we had to make a U turn and go back and start over again. So that's fun, right? Yeah, uh, so let's, uh, let's get started. Look at verse six. Here's what, uh, here's, what it, here's what the apostle writes. There is a one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So what's the word that jumps out to you there? Yeah, all, that's right. And then look at verse seven. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So what's the difference between verse six and verse seven? Grace was given to what? each of us, right? It says grace was given to each of us. So back to verse 6, uh, one God, one Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. And so, so in that verse, uh, the, the, uh, as Paul was writing that, he's including all alike, no matter how many different individuals there were, or how many people that make up that particular number that he was talking about. And then in verse 7, he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so we get this contrast. He says that, that this was given to you all, this was for all of you, but that's a contrasting conjunction, right? But says something different. So so in necessarily opposite to that or or, or kind of a little, little different vein from that, uh, we get the contrasting conjunction uh, Paul directs his writing to each one of us individually. So let me give you some examples. So I would say that All of you here in this room right now are alive, right? Most of you are awake. Uh, But all of you are alive. Um, Let's see. All of you are present, right? All of you are actually here right now. All of you have chosen to be in this gathering today, whether by choice or whether by coercion. Uh, You have chosen to at least show up today. Um, But, just like he says there, but... Some of you actually read the text ahead. But uh, some of you uh, uh, came early to sing in the band. But some of you wore a blue shirt that says blue shirt. But some of you barely squeezed in here at the last second, and we're glad you did right? I mean, So you see the differences? We, we are all doing something, but some of us are individually had something else going on today. See the difference? So we get back to the text. Let's read it again. But there's one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And, and, and honestly, as he's talking about grace, it's a good thing that this is more personal, right? Would you say that? It's a good thing that grace is applied to you. More personal, more specific, uh, that that this application to you, that grace is applied to you from Jesus. Amen? Y'all with me? Okay. None of you, not one of you, Paul says, to the church is without this specific grace. If you are part of the family of God, if you are part of the household of God, as Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus, he was saying that none of you in this church is without this specific grace that God has given to you. And whatever, uh, and whatever a measure of that grace has been applied to you has been applied by the giver. That God is the one who is giving this grace to you. He's giving it to you individually, and he is the one who is applying it to you individually. He may apply it one way to you, and he may apply it a different way to me, but grace is given to each of us. Now, in the context of this, this grace doesn't apply to forgiveness or life or salvation because we all get forgiveness from Jesus, amen? Amen. Yeah, if you're a Christian, again, he's writing to the church, that we all get that grace. We all get forgiveness. We all get salvation if we are in Christ. But instead, what is usually called a charisma in the scriptures in its widest sense of the word is something who is give, something that is given to the church to edify the church. Each of us is given something to edify the church. Saving grace is alike for all, okay? For all of us who are in Christ, we have all been saved by grace through faith through the finished work of Jesus, right? Same way for all of us. But each one of us receives a spiritual gift that is different. Each of us has a spiritual gift that is different from the other. And as verse seven says, it's according to the measure of the gift, uh, according to the measure of gift of Christ. That's what it says in verse 7. See, it's Jesus who decides what gifts that each of us is given. Paul says it in his writing to the church at Corinth. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, all these spiritual gifts, that's what he's talking about because that's where the, he reads about that in, in Corinthians, are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So these few verses, as well as other verses in the scriptures, teaches us that we possess some type of spiritual gifts that is given by God and is to be used and not tucked away. To be used and not tucked away. And so the question has to beg at this point, what is your spiritual gift? you know what your spiritual gift is? And if you know what your spiritual gift is, are you actually using it? Are you using it in this church? If this is your church, are you using your spiritual gift in this church? Maybe you're here and you're a guest with us today and your home church is somewhere else. I'll ask you the same question. What is your spiritual gift? And are you using that spiritual gift in your church wherever you are? wherever your home church actually is. And if not, why not? If not, why not? Here's what happens in most churches. Many people come to a church. They like the really good music. They like the adequate preaching. They like the coffee. It seems to fit it's close to home so they can skis in at 10 05 and still make it. You know what I'm saying? Many of us choose churches uh, that way. And we come and we, as Adrian Rogers used to say, we'll sit, soak, and sour. Who's heard, heard him say that before. Yeah. He would say, we'll sit, soak, and sour because we'll come and sit in a seat, and we'll just soak it all in, and we'll sour because we do nothing with it. That's not the life of the New Testament church. New Testament church is the very opposite of that. Very, the New Testament church says that Christ has given us gifts. Each of you, if you are a Christian, has been endowed with some spiritual gift to be used in the edifying of the church. What's your spiritual gift? And how are you using it? One of the beautiful things about the New Testament church is it's a community. It's a community of people, but the, the New, New Testament church does not uh, uh, advocate uniformity. <clears throat> so, yes, we are all of one community, but we're not all exactly alike. I mean, you're not like me. And the church said... Yeah, amen. You you don't want to deal with this. Uh, We're we're not all exactly alike. We're not called to look alike. We're not called to speak alike. We're not called to do alike. The the, the church of Jesus Christ, the refuge church, is this beautiful mixture of unity and diversity. That We should look different. We should be different, yet one. And and so as we get into this, I want you to think, I I pray that the Holy Spirit is urging you, maybe it's through my voice, or maybe he's just doing it on his own, to use your spiritual gift. Now, as we keep on going in this, this text can get a little bit confusing. Look at verse 8 and see what it says. Look what it says. Therefore, it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And, and so let's start with the end of this verse, because that will help us kind of get the continuation of what Paul is talking about here when he's talking a little bit about spiritual gifts. And, and let's address a little bit about the diversity of gifts in the church. And then we'll get back to the first part of this verse, which will help us get on through uh, the rest of our text today. Uh, I'll start with this. Everyone who is in Christ... Who is truly born again is a charismatic. Okay? Everyone who is uh, born again, who is filled with the Spirit, is a tambourine ringing. Oh, look, I brought out my uh, dove, Holy Spirit tambourine today. Okay? We are truly a charismatic. Now, charismatic... Has been hijacked today. The word charismatic, and the term charismatic was specifically when in the church has been hijacked today by denominations, some manifestation of the Holy Spirit that comes upon them, and then that some places will say, the evidence of the spirit coming upon you. And the thing that makes you a charismatic is that when the spirit comes upon you, then you begin to what? Say it louder. Speak in tongues. Yeah, we all know that, right? So you, we all understand the way this terminology has been hijacked. That that is the way and the only way that that is an evidence of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what I'm going to tell you. Did that happen in Acts whenever the Holy Spirit descended upon the believers? Did it? Yeah, it did, right? So they spoke in, in, in a different language. They spoke where people could understand them. And here's what I'm going to tell you about tongues. This may make some of y'all mad, but I don't really care. Uh, Because you need to understand what the Scripture says and not what your mom and daddy may have told you or what your traditions may be, okay? Here's what the Scripture teaches us. That, yes, we do get filled with the Holy Spirit, and sometimes, just as in the book of Acts, then that may manifest itself in a tongue, okay, okay? That may manifest itself, and here's the way that happens. I've said it from this pulpit before, and I've said it many times before. It may manifest itself in a tongue, but here's what I believe that happens. Not some foreign language that we just give gibberish to and some gathering together to show, hey, look at me, I can speak in this whatever language, and that means that I have the Holy Spirit. That's not what that means at all. Sometimes what that means when a tongue comes means that if I'm going to go and I'm going to experience someone else and maybe a different culture that has a different language, that the Spirit of God himself may come over me and allow me to speak to someone that speaks a different language and they understand the gospel. That's what it looks like for tongues to be used. If you want to have some private prayer language, I'm not even telling you, you can't do that. But you, what's the key word there? private, somewhere in your prayer closet, that's where you're going to speak with the Lord, not to show yourself and say, hey, look at me. Look what I've got, okay? If y'all mad, get unmad. All right? If that's what your parents do, God bless them in that. But you you have to get over that too. Read the Bible. Okay? Stepping off (laughs) my soapbox. Sometimes that manifests itself as people like running through the building. Okay? Don't try that here. All right? Our security will tackle you and hold you down until I come over and rebuke you for that. Sometimes it may, I've seen where people do these outbursts of laughter where they're just laughing uncontrollably. You seen that? You you seen that happen before on some kind of social media stuff, and, and, and things like that. I'm not sure any of these outbursts point to Jesus. I think most of these outbursts point to me. Look at me. Look what's happening with me you know what, I, the, when we gather together as a church, this is not about you, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. The things we're doing are to point people to Jesus. The right, things that, that happen in this worship gathering are to point people to Jesus. Not to people look at me, or not people to look at you, but to point people to Jesus. Now, the opposite of that can be true too. Um following Jesus should encourage some level some level of excitement. Many of us fall into the old frozen chosen camp. <laughs> right? Where I'm afraid I ain't moving, I ain't smiling, I ain't gonna lift a finger. I'm not. So we've gone from one extreme that we just talked about and we all seem to agree on to the other extreme. So we're either running around, uh, chasing each other through the sanctuary, or we're sitting there acting like nothing's going on. I'm not sure either of those really reflect what it looks like for the Spirit of God to live within us. Amen? Amen. The word charismatic comes from the Greek word charis. Charis, actually, is how you say it, which means gift or grace. That's what that means. And the apostle Paul here states that Christians have been gifted by the grace of God. But we all don't get the same gifts, right? We we don't get the same gifts as the Spirit of God calls us to. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And that's part of the beauty of the diversity of the church is that we don't all have the same gifts. The church of the Lord Jesus needs multiple gifts, needs us all to have differing gifts for the body to be edified. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, <clears throat> we're going to read this together. I'm not read, we're not going to read it together. You're going to follow along as I read it out loud, but just follow along with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is what Paul says. He says this, uh, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noise, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have a prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, as if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have love, but I don't have love, I have nothing. Love is patient and love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It does not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way, but it's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, but we prophesy in part. But when the perfect one comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but, when, but uh, then face to face. Now I know in part, but I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. All these, but the greatest of these is love. I'm just going to tell you, if there, if, the, the Scripture says that we have faith, we have hope, and we have love. are like, Preacher, I thought you were going to talk about spiritual gifts. I'm talking about the things that God gives to us. Faith and hope and love. And they manifest in ways, in different ways, as we are part of the church. We have faith. We have hope. And we have love. And we express that with one another. Our gifts will come to, our gifts will come to fruition. And then when we use those gifts in the church, we get an opportunity to edify one another and edify the church together. Jesus gives gifts to all of us. Again, I ask, what are your gifts? What are your gifts? Are you using them in the church? And are you using it so that the church may grow? And are you using them to point people to Jesus? See how those things that work together? Edifying the church, encouraging one another, Pointing people to Jesus. Your gifts matter. And using your gifts in the church matters. And if this is your church home, using your gifts in this church home matters. Let's keep going. Now let's deal with the first part of verse 8 and the next few verses. Look what it says again. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So let's look at verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this is a reference to Psalm 68. So let's turn our Bibles to Psalm 68. The Old Testament Psalm 68. Back in Jesus' day, uh, when the Scriptures were written and um, throughout the Scriptures, specifically in Jesus' day, a rabbi would reference just a piece of a part of the Scripture, and, but they would know they were talking about the entire piece of that Scripture, and so that's what happens here. As the uh, as Paul is writing to the church, he references just a piece of Psalm sixty eight, but the people then would mostly know that he's referencing the entire Psalm sixty eight. And so we're going to read Psalm sixty eight together. It's a little lengthy, uh, but we're going to read it because most of us don't know what Psalm sixty eight says. Right? Would you agree with that? Okay. Here's what it says. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary at home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, selah, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel, Rain in abundance, O oh God, you shed abroad, you restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O oh God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word the Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil, though you men lie among the sheep, folds. The wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scattered kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many peaked mountains, a mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with hatred, O many peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where is the Lord? Uh, Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice 10,000. Thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leaving a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears up. God is our salvation. Selah. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong the deliverances from death. But God will strike the head of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. You... Your procession is seen, O oh God. The procession of my God, the king into the sanctuary. Get a picture of that. See what he's happening there? The king is coming. The king is marching in. The singers in front, the musicians last between them, virgins playing tambourines.. Um, bless God in the great congregation, the Lord, O oh you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, yeah, the least of them in the lead, the princes of Judah in their throng, the prince of Zebulun, the prince of Naphtali. Uh, Summon your powers, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us, because your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herds of bulls with the calves of the peoples. "'Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. "'Scatter the people who delight in war. "'Nobles shall come from Egypt. "'Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. "'O, kingdom, o, o kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. "'Sing praises to the Lord, Selah. "'To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, "'behold, he sends out his voice.'" His mighty voice, ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to the people. Bless be God. Amen. Woo. This is a psalm. So this psalm and the speaker in this, the speaker in this psalm is God, Okay? And this psalm is a psalm of triumph, a psalm of victory. And, and, and where he's talking about is where they're placing the ark on Zion, and it's celebrated like it's been this great victory. And our quote from today's text shows that the psalm is, in its deepest sense, when you really get down to it, it's a messianic psalm pointing to the coming victory of Jesus. That's what this psalm, remember, the scripture is all about Jesus, right? Right? And so this is not just a psalm that's talking about an isolated event, but the psalm is also pointing to the victor who is to come, and that's Jesus. And and it's in a literal triumph. When a literal triumph happens, the chiefs uh, of the enemy's army, they're led captive. They're all gathered together by the the victorious army, uh, by whoever conquered them. And and, and then the victor gives spoils to the people. He gives good things to the people. Whatever they want and whatever they took from this other place, they give spoils to the picture. You see kind of the connection that, that they give good things to his people? And here it is. And so here's what I want and what I believe that Paul is writing to the church. This is important because it makes this text make a lot more sense. But the spoils from the enemy in the messianic piece of it is people. Okay? The spoils from the enemy. Who we all we don't belong to Jesus in the beginning. We belong to, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. We belong to the prince of the power of the air at that particular point. But the king comes in and he wins the victory, and he takes the spoils of victory, which is people and gives them to Jesus at his triumphal resurrection. He gives them, and we become the church. Jesus, and then Jesus gives gifts to his people. So not to take this analogy too far, but this is important. This is what I want you to understand. As a conqueror after a triumph gets to distribute gifts, so Jesus, on his resurrection and ascension, sent the Holy Spirit to distribute gifts to his church. Okay. Just like a king goes out and wins the people and wins things that he distributes to his people, just like Jesus getting victory over sin and hell and the grave upon his resurrection, then gives gifts to his people who are the church. Does that makes sense. Does that makes sense. I'm telling you, it makes a lot more sense. And I'm going to talk about this in just a second. Let me read this next verse. Let's keep going because it'll help bring this into play. <clears throat> verse 9, parenthetically, it says in the text, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. And so uh, the New Living Translation makes this verse a lot more clear and is very helpful in understanding what this verse means. Look look what New Living Translation says. Notice that it says he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. Now, here's where this text went into a lot of different directions with a lot of different pastors. And this text, I promise you, will get preached in a lot of different ways in a lot of different churches. Because this text can get missed and misinterpreted and, and really bring up some bad doctrine for you in the past. Some people argue that this is about Jesus descending into hell and preaching the gospel to the captives there. And there are verses, New Testament verses, that would ascribe that Jesus did go preach the gospel to the captives. And, and, and I, I don't, I'm not disregarding those verses at, at all, because I believe that as those people were held uh, as the Old Testament saints were held in a place that Jesus preached the gospel to them, that he was like, hey, I am the fulfillment of this, and he led a whole host of captives out of captivity. All that's true, okay? But that's not what this verse is talking about, okay? That's not at all what this is talking about at all. This is not dealing with that. Context is key, and whenever you study the Bible, whenever you listen to people preach the Bible, if you're listening to other people interpret the Bible for you, make sure that they understand the context in which they are teaching and preaching from. It's so important not to get this out of context because um, if we preach out of context, that's when we get into error. If we preach out of context, that's whenever we can get into heresy, that we can preach something that seems right from a text, but is actually contrary to what the writer and what the Bible is actually teaching us. R.C. Sproul says this, and I'm going to read this because I think it's very important. He says this, In the Old Testament, the idea of ascending was linked to two activities. First, it described drawing near to the presence of God. The tabernacle was set on a hill, and people went up to it. Later, the temple was built on a mountain in Jerusalem, and in the book of Psalms, called the Psalms of Ascent, in uh, Psalm 120 through uh, Psalm 134, um, it described worshipers approaching the temple. They were going up to the temple. And so when Jesus ascended, he ascended into God's presence. Then uh, Sproul goes on to say this. Secondly, ascending was connected to the enthronement after victory when the spoils of battle would be brought up to God's house and captives from the battle would be led through the city. And this reference is, uh, to captives is not a description of Satan, but to Christ's people whom Christ defeated uh, whom Christ uh, defeated in the sense of destroying their sins and setting them free. That's good gospel teaching. So R.C. would say, and I agree with him here, especially after going down my own path of error (laughs) uh, in this particular text, uh, that this is not about Jesus descending into hell at all. Look again at verse 9 carefully. Look what it says. 9 says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth. This implying, and I would say even much more declaring about both his incarnation and his resurrection. And if you put that in the context of what Paul is writing about to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4, it makes all the more sense. There's no way that Paul would parenthetically stop what he was talking about and go, let me talk about Jesus descending into hell and defeating the devil and all. That's not what he's talking about in this place. He's talking about him coming to earth, living like us and dying on the cross and being resurrected back to life. That's what this text is all about. And this is the essence of the Christian faith. And that's what Paul was all about. God took on the form of a man. So Jesus descended to the earth to live like you and me. He was tempted in every way like you and me. Yet he did it without sin. And he willingly laid his life down on a cross. He died on a cross. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins that the blood of bulls and goats never took away anybody's sin. All those Old Testament sacrifices didn't take away anybody's sin. They were pointing to the perfect Lamb of God, who is Jesus, who shed his blood on a cross to cover mine and your sin debt. The Bible says that he died on that cross, he was buried in a grave, and three days later, he rose from the dead. Amen? Victorious over our sin. Victorious over hell. Victorious over the grave. now he is ascended back to the Father. He is ever interceding. He is at the right hand of the Father, interceding, which means he is our advocate. He is our lawyer. Whenever we are being accused by the accuser, by our enemy who is saying Scott Benjamin is a low piece of garbage, Jesus is saying he might have been at one time, but now he's mine. He might have been full of sin, but now he is mine. He is washed in the blood of the lamb. He belongs to me. And if you're a Christian, Jesus is doing the same thing for you. And if you're not a Christian, he will do the same thing for you. He will. He'll be your advocate as well. Scripture says he is ever interceding on our behalf and he will come again for his people just as he promised This gospel truth was the only way to destroy our sin and set you and me free. Verse 10 tells us that he's at work on uh, our behalf for his people. Look, he who descended, who came to earth, is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. He's gone back to the Father that he might fill all things. And so the question begs itself at the end of this particular text is what is Jesus doing now to fill all things? What is he doing now? If, if, if Paul says he has ascended back to the Father, what is he doing that fills all things? Well, I'm glad you asked. First, he's doing this. He is mediating a new covenant. He is the intercessor of a new covenant. He, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 says, Now the point in which we are saying is this. We have such a high priest... One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He is ruling and he is reigning and he is, like I just told you, interceding on your behalf. Do you know what that means? I mean, you know what that means? Come up here, Paul. Angie, you come up here too. This is off the cuff. This is not in the notes. Angie, you stand on this side. You stand right there. Hey, thanks for participating. Yeah, I'm glad you're... Yeah. So, if, if Paul has been a jerk to Angie, standard, right? Yeah. And Paul, like, is, was really sorry in general for what he has done to Angie, sometimes Angie may be really angry. You know what I'm saying? That ever happened to your house? No, okay. We'll just go with it then. Just imagine if this were happening. Sometimes uh, there might need to be somebody in the middle to go, "Hey, look, he's really sorry." I mean, he—he's really—he's really sorry, and, and I mean, he, I don't think he'll ever do it again. I mean, I know it's happened twelve times, but I'm sure he probably won't ever do it again. I think you should probably forgive him. Okay. All right. So, see how easy that was. So. That's a this. This is very elementary. Okay, this is very elementary. go sit down. I just wanted to bring you up here. Uh, So this is very elementary to show I'm in the middle, and so Paul has really messed it up, and he's trying to get to Angie so they can have uh, uh, husband-wife time, and so uh, and so I've come in the middle to to just broker that whole thing, so to say, hey, y'all need to you know y'all need to get along, much more. Much more in the same way that Jesus intercedes and he mediates the new covenant between us and God. He mediates the fact that, hey, no matter how bad that I've been, no matter how much I sin, no matter how great my sins are, where sin abounds, what? Grace much more abounds and grace and truth come through who? Jesus. That's the the point I was playing here. Grace and truth come through Jesus and he is mediating the new covenant between us and the father. How beautiful is that? That's what he is doing. He is mediating. He is playing the middleman between us and a holy and righteous God. That's what he's doing right now. Whenever we're accused by the accuser, he's going, no, I got Scott Benjamin. I, I understand the way he was, but now he is washed in the blood. He is mine. He belongs to us. He's not that way anymore. He was once this way, but not anymore. See that? That's one of the things that Jesus is doing. Secondly, Jesus is seated as our King and priest. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 says, Therefore he is a mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Let me read that again. This is Hebrews 9:15. Go back and read it again. A lot in this verse, he says. Therefore, he is the mediator. Jesus is the mediator, what we just talked about, of the new covenant, the new promise. We talk about that whenever we have communion, remember? That we talk about the new promise in his blood, by his body and by his blood, he's mediated, mediated a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So those of you who are Christians, those of you who have been called into Jesus, may receive the promised eternal inheritance since death has occurred, Jesus, that redeems them from their transgressions committed under the first covenant. That's excellent. Jesus, again, is the go-between. He is the one who attempts to make those who are in conflict to come together in agreement. Just like we were an enemy with God, he has now mediated a new promise between us and the Father. And he has made us one. That's beautiful. Thirdly, Jesus is preparing a believer's eternal home. So if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, Jesus is preparing your eternal home. Look at John chapter 14. This is what it says. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to, would uh, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself and where I am, there you may be also. He's like, I'm going away. I'm going to prepare this sweet place. And where, and then I'm going to come back for you and so that where I am, when I come back, you'll be there with me. And you know the way to where I'm going. And, and if you know anything about the text in John chapter 14, uh, one of his disciples says, uh, but where, how do we know where you're going? Uh, and how, how do we get there? I think he said it just like that. Uh, And then Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And some of you need to hear that today. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. You don't come to the Father through uh, your religious activity. You don't come to the Father through your scales of your good versus bad, hoping that one day your good's going to outweigh your bad. That's not what what Jesus says. I'll tell you what, your bad will always, say always, always outweigh your good. If that's what you're depending on, that's a bad plan. Jesus says, he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and no one, no one comes to the Father except through him. If you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, please let today be your day of salvation. Please today repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus alone for your salvation. Please do that today. Before you get out of here today, please do that today. Then he says, if you had known me, you would have known that uh, uh, my father also. From now on, you you do know him and you have seen him. He says, if you, and so, so he goes on and say, he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He, said, he, he was telling his disciples, you have seen God in the flesh. Heaven is being prepared for each of us as believers. Then fourth, he says this, uh, Jesus is interceding on our behalf. Romans 8.34 says, uh, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I've already talked about this, but I don't want to cover it again. What happens when a believer sins? Where is the guilt? Where's the condemnation? Where's the punishment for that sin? Whatever you, that sin you committed yesterday or last night or this morning or on your way here. Where is the condemnation? Who pays for that sin? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Amen? And lastly, Jesus is awaiting the Father's command to go get your children. First Thessalonians 4 says this, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I have to talk about this or I'm not being true to myself and true to the text. Uh, most of you, if you've grown up in church in the South, uh, have heard of uh, the secret taking out of the church and this rapture theology that somewhere in the middle of the night you watched Left Behind when you were a kid and in your Sunday school classes just to scare the dickens out of you. And, uh, and you saw it, when here's the way it happened. Everybody's just walking, they're eating, and they're watching ball games and doing all this kind of stuff, and suddenly like, pow! something happens, and then all their clothes are laying on the floor, right? You know what I'm talking about? And, and then everybody looks around, oh, no, what's happened? Then planes start flying out, falling out of the sky, and, and, uh, and, and uh, trains start running off the tracks, and, you know, it's just chaos, right? Who's seen that? Yeah, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I don't read anywhere In the scripture about a secret taking out of the church, I read about a second coming of Jesus. Can we agree that? We all can agree on a second coming of Jesus. I don't read anywhere in the scripture about a secret taking out of the church. That's why it's important. Context and reading the scriptures is so important so that you don't get bad theology, no matter what movies teach you or your pastor might have taught you. 1 Thessalonians, I believe, just like we read about in, in, in our text today from Ephesians, is talking about Jesus coming back, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and those who are with us who remain are caught up in the air to meet him. And so it's not that we're going out. We, we're going to go up, but we're going to meet the king who's coming back. This is the second coming of Jesus. First Thessalonians, Paul's writing about the church, about Jesus coming back. And we are his people who are going to meet our conquering king who has won the war and kicked the devil in the teeth and kicked death and hell and Hades in the teeth. And we're going up and we're going to be caught up in the air and then we're going to come back victorious. He's going to be riding in on a horse with tats on his legs, king of kings and lord of lords. Read it. It says it. Uh, uh, that he's coming back and we're coming back with him. That's the way that victorious kings would come back into the, the, uh, their towns whenever they won the battle. And I believe that's what Paul is talking about in Thessalonians. Right. This is Jesus' people meeting the king in triumph. All right, I can't talk about that anymore because I'm way past. So what? <sighs> Listen, just like the apostle Paul narrowed his focus from verse 6, to verse 7, when he spoke about all the people to each one of the people. Remember that when we talked about that in the very beginning of this sermon? He was talking about all in verse 6, and then he talked about each one of us in verse 7. I want this question uh, to be to all of us, yet each of you individually. Here's what I have to say. Is Jesus doing things on your behalf? Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus mediating the new covenant on your behalf? Is Jesus preparing heaven as an eternal home for you? Is Jesus interceding on your behalf? Is Jesus awaiting the Father's command to come to get you? Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? If you have any doubts about this at all, any doubts about that at all, I plead with you today. Let's talk about that. Let's get that settled. I I plead with you today to turn to Jesus. Finally, fully turn to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Put your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ alone to cover your sin debt. I urge you today, come to Jesus. Let me pray for us.